Thank you very much, Early Childhood Center and Sachs, for our lovely music today. And for all the parents who brought their youngsters, we appreciate you making that extra effort. We're continuing a series that I started last week called Empowered Living, and it's talking about how the Bible is a guidebook that not only gives us facts and stories, but can empower us to live in the 21st century. So I was thinking about memories. Memories are very interesting, and the older I get, the more I forget that I know, and the more that I know that I forget. But I was thinking I have one very vivid memory, or I have many vivid memories, here's one of them. It happened when I was about 13 or 14. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I know I have an Ohioan over here somewhere, I saw him earlier. And uh, my two best friends, who are still my two best friends, strangely enough, are named John and Corby. And John and Corby and I were up on the playground. We always went to Montrose. That's where we went to school in elementary school. And even after we went on to junior high and high school, we'd still go up to Montrose and play wiffle ball, football, basketball, baseball. That's where we hung out. So we were probably, I think, playing basketball. And while we were there playing, something unusual kind of happened. These three Young girls about our age, so around 14, came onto the playground. Now, we knew every girl that lived in this neighborhood, and here was three girls together coming on the playground that we did not know. And not only was there three girls coming onto the playground, but they all had on dresses below their knee, which was a little bit unusual for girls to come to the playground in dresses and long dresses at the time. So that caught our attention. So, being uh, red-blooded American young men, we went over, decide, decided to check it out. And we started talking to these girls. And they thought we were cute or something. I don't remember what we talked about or, or what we did, but I remember they were nice, and they invited us over to one of the girls' house. They were having a cookout. So we had three hungry boys, three cute girls, an invitation for free food. So I did the manly thing and I hopped on my bike and we all rode over to one of these girls. I don't remember their names at all. We rode over to their house for a cookout. And the backyard was full of people, 30, 40 people. So not only were there lots of people there and not only was there a lot of free food, but there was something else that awaited me that awaited us. And it was an unwanted surprise attack by an overzealous church member on a Sunday afternoon, ready and eager to ask three worldly young boys if they wanted to accept Jesus into their hearts. So somewhere around my second or third burger, I figured out that something was amiss. This wasn't just an invitation to a cookout. This was a church cookout. And they had found some worldly boys up at the playground and they had invited this over unsuspectingly. Who knows if these girls weren't sent out as scouts. 
So meanwhile, I'm munching on my burger with John and Corby, my friends right there, and this one man approaches us and starts talking to us. He, he circled in for the kill. Now, I was raised with no religion, but I'm smart enough to know to stay away from religious people because they always want something. My spidey senses were tingling that this was more than just a friendly invitation to a cookout. So towards the end of this time, as we stood there eating our burgers, this one man came up to us and he started asking us questions. So where are you guys from? So what do you do? And then he asked us if we knew Jesus as our Savior. That's when I realized it. And I quickly wanted to finish my burger and get out of there. But I couldn't because he had us pinned into the corner. So he made us say the sinner's prayer, Lord, I, I admit I'm a sinner. Lord, I admit that I need Jesus as a Savior. And he led us, I'm sure he thought, he led us to the Lord. No sooner had I said amen that I jumped on my bike and I rode away for fear that they were chasing after me. As if to say, but wait a minute, there's more. Now looking back at that, I felt manipulated and I even felt unsafe. They had not seen me. They had not seen my friends for who we were. They had probably seen lost boys who needed the Lord. Now, the question, were we lost? Probably. Did we need the Lord? Certainly. Was God using them that day? I doubt it. And after I became a Christian and accepted the Lord a good 10 or 15 years later, and then I became a pastor, I have remembered this story well enough to tell you. And this story has informed me to make one of my own life lessons, one of my mantras for ministry, one of my creeds. And here it is. It's a little bit long, but don't invite people to cookouts and then turn it into an evangelistic meeting. See people for who they are. Accept them where they are. Get to know them. Don't judge them. Bless them. Pray for them. Let them grow and then be open to serving them and meeting their needs. So maybe they did. Maybe the Lord did use them that day by showing me what I did not want to be. So this week we continue this series, as I mentioned, Empowered Living. This series hopefully will demonstrate that the Bible provides answers to the most basic and essential questions of life that we have, and not only give us information, but give us inspiration to live for Him today. We are empowered, not just by the facts from this book, but we are empowered for living today for Him and making a difference in the world around us. The Bible provides not just perspective, but power to live our daily lives. Now last week I mentioned that the Bible is the rule for living. That was the point of what I wanted to say. And today I want you to realize that if the Bible is the rule, and if the Bible is the textbook, and if the Bible is the source, then what is the main point of that book. If somebody says, well, what's this book about? I mean, you could say many, many things. I realize 
that. But I would just try and sum it up in one word that the main point of the biblical story, the nucleus, the power, the source is Jesus. Now you don't have to be a Christian to know that there's something unique about Jesus. Even the the dating and numerical system of our calendars is based on the birth of this one man. We have B.C., before Christ. And then the other one is A.D., which means Anos Domini, the year of the Lord in Latin. Time was literally divided by the birth of this one man. So our very understanding of history puts Jesus right at the center. And the Old Testament points forward to a Messiah who will come and take away the sins of the world, while the New Testament looks back on the works of Jesus and then His early church and how they went forward. He is the focal point of history and the focal point of the biblical story. Jesus is the center of history, the Bible, and God's rescue plan. So if you like to take a nap in church and you want to know what the point of the sermon is, Here it is. I'm going to give you the point so you can take a nap and we'll wake you up about 12.20. So here's the point. Jesus is the center of the Bible. He is the center of God's rescue plan and salvation is found through no other but Jesus. So good night, those of you. We've provided cushioned pews and the hymnals make lovely little pillows if you need them. But those facts will do no good unless you make not Jesus the center of history and not Jesus the center of the Bible, but unless you make Jesus the center of your life. So today I want to look at a story which illustrates the love that he has for each one of us and the lengths he will go to connect to us. So not only is he the center of history, not only is he the center of the Bible, but you must realize his relentless love for you and accept him in your own life no matter what happens in your life. So yes, the Bible holds truth, and yes, doctrines are important, but the relentless love of Christ is the hinge of every doctrine that you might have or formulate. Every single belief you might have about the Bible, what happens when you die, the Sabbath, how you should live, how you should pray, every single one of those should be based on Christ. What does it tell you about Him? What does it say about God and His love? Now the the ladies, Lindsay and Janet, did a great job of reading that story, but I need to know, is it all right if I read just a little bit of that story again? Is it all right if I read my Bible in church? So if you could turn to John chapter 7, I'm going to read just the first four, first seven, John chapter 4, sorry, John chapter 4, I'm going to read the first seven verses again from the English Standard Version. It's a great story, a well-known story. And it says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. What a great name. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which other translations will say it was noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. That's what I want to share with you today. Now, Israel... Put up my map there, please. Thank you. Israel was about 120 miles long from north to south. And within those 120 miles, there's three very definite divisions of land. So I'm going to turn. In the bottom is Judea. Now, it used to be Israel, and then when the kingdom was divided, you had Judea in the bottom and what was called Israel in the top. But then the top part, as Israel got overrun by the Assyrians and Nebuchadnezzar, overrun by lots of people as history went on about 700 B.C. So in the bottom you have Judea. That's where you have Bethlehem. That's where you have Jerusalem. That's where you have, at the bottom blue, you can see the Dead Sea. In the middle was Samaria. And in the top was Galilee. That's where you have Nazareth. That's where you have the Sea of Galilee, the little bit of blue. Up above it is uh, Syria to the right. The green would be now what we would call Jordan. So what happened was that it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now these Samaritans had been overrun by the Assyrians and by Nebuchadnezzar and other people. So rather than kill them, what they do is they brought in other people to destroy their culture. They would give people new names. They would give people a new language. They would take away everything that they held true as a culture. This is why in the story of Daniel, you have Daniel and his three friends taken away and given new names and tried to give them a new diet because they wanted them to be people that could work, but they didn't want them to be the people that they took. So Samaria ended up being a region that was half Jewish, half other things. They were half-breeds. They weren't pure anymore. The Samaria, Samaritan region was not a good place to go. So how does a good Jew get from Judea up to Galilee where the other good Jews are? Well, obviously the blue line is the way he should go. There was straight. But a good Jew would not want to go through Samaria because there, there was people that he was not supposed to be hanging out with. So a good Jew would take that red route and he would go like extra days and extra miles to avoid the bad people, the half-breeds, the less-thans, the outcasts. So a good Jew down in Judea, like Jesus, should have taken that red route and gone completely over, crossed the Jordan River, gone up to what we call Jordan, the green area, come back into Galilee, and gone back to where he wanted to go. So when the Bible says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, 
That's not actually true. It wasn't even socially encouraged for him to go through Samaria. The King James Version says, and he must needs go through Samaria. I like that. The next time I, wanna, I have to do something, I'm going to say to my wife, I must needs have to do that. Like I say, I'm going to go uh, to Publix. I must needs go to Publix. I want to start talking really King Jamesy. So the King James says he must needs go through Samaria. The Amplified Version says it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. He must. It was necessary. He had to go through Samaria. That's what the Bible says. But that's not really true because of the route. I mean, they had good phone service back then. They had GPS. He could have taken that red road. He would have gotten there. Sure, it adds on a couple days. Sure, he's got to stop at Motel 6. But, you know, there's Dunkin' Donuts on the way. There's going to be food. He could have gone that way. So he doesn't need to go that way because of the road. This road was marked out. It probably was called the Good Jew Road. It went straight up. It wasn't true because of the time, because they would be expecting him to do this six-day journey instead of a four-day journey or whatever it was, because he, as a good Jew, would go the long way. And it wasn't true because of the time, and it wasn't true because of the road, but it was true that he had to go through Samaria because of the woman. He didn't have to go through it because of the distance or the time, but he had to go through it because of this woman. So what if, what if this with me? Let's play what if. What if he saw this woman and he had scheduled a divine appointment with her? What if he saw that she was going to be at this well at noon, which was not the time that most ladies went to the well to get water. You would go early in the morning when it's cooler. You would go early in the morning so you would have your water for the day. You don't go to the well at noon in the middle of the Israeli desert. What if Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria because there is someone there that I want to meet. Someone I want to talk to. Someone whose life I want to change. And when they came to Samaria, it says that Jesus sat by a well to rest because he was tired. So he was a human. He cried. He ate. He was tired. He slept. And the rest of them went to buy food, leaving him alone. It was the sixth hour. It was noon. The heat was hot. And Jesus was weary and thirsty. And so a Samaritan woman comes to the well. Now, maybe she was a, uh, an outcast of that city. Maybe she was morally corrupt. Maybe she was socially uh, kept out from other people. And the other woman drove her other women drove her away from the nicer well, from the closer well, so that she had to go to this well, which was on the outskirts of town, in the middle of the day, rather than in the morning. This woman had been married five times, and she's living with a sixth man. And as I read that, it made me think of my father. My father was married six times. So it's always an odd thing when you get up and sort of like one, two, three, then you start reaching into those, you know, professional mirroring, five, six, yes, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, Larry King, people like that, they've been married seven, eight, nine, ten times. 
Only the old people will know Elizabeth Taylor. Anybody know Elizabeth Taylor? Am I, hello, is this thing on? Hello. Larry King, I think he's on eight or nine. I read the other day Pamela Anderson was going for a divorce after 12 days. But when I read this, I thought of my dad. Married six times. So this woman had been married five times and was now living with another guy. So in terms of what people thought about her in that culture at that time, it probably wasn't, she wasn't probably head of the PTA. She probably wasn't, you know, home and school leader at her church. Now, if you think people like the Kardashians have a story, to tell, if you think things like Real Housewives of New Jersey or Atlanta or Dallas or Beverly Hills, or I don't watch any of these, but I have friends who do and they tell me. If you think any of those have the scoop on scandal, they had their own little scandal-making machine back then, and this lady was probably at the front of it. So it's hard for me to imagine what that life was like. I'm not a woman. I'm not an outcast. I'm not living in that society. But I'm trying to think of what that would have been like. I'm trying to put myself in her place as an outcast, as tired, as feeling old, living a life that I never thought I'd be living. Nobody, as a young girl, I'm imagining, would ever say, I want to be married five times, because that's a lot of heartache. No boy ever says, I want to be married five times. So the life that she thought she was going to have, excuse me, I'm stepping on my shoestring. The life that she thought she was going to have as a young girl is not the life that she ended up with. And as you get older, I notice this. Things don't always turn out the way you thought they would. And you sort of have to live with it. I imagine myself going to college and sort of uh, doing this one thing and somehow making money. I didn't know how I was going to make money. Things change. I'm very happy with the life I have, but as you get older, and I know my old people, and that can be whoever you think I'm talking to, old people, you all have things like you have heartache and you have regret. Things didn't work out, a marriage didn't work out, someone died, you lost a job, whatever it was. And, the, and then all at once you realize, I'm still me, but I'm not the me I thought I was 20 years ago. Things have changed. But I hope people still like me the way I am. Because this is it. As Popeye said, I am what I am. You go to any other church, see if they quote Popeye. The word that comes to mind when I think of her life is burdened, weighted down, heavy, heavy with the cares of her town, heavy with the cares of her life, heavy with the cares of her culture, heavy with the cares of her community, heavy with the cares of the conversations that go on around her. She steps out into town and somebody might say, what are you doing here? Or she hears the whispering, or she sees the glances, or she runs into an ex-husband, or whatever it is. 
you don't just move through life freely as your story continues. So I want to ask you, and you can reflect on this, are there things in your life that are burdensome to you, that weigh you down, that they're heavy? It's not the way you wanted it to be, but it is that way. Things that people see and they talk about, or things that you think people see and talk about, but it's part of your story and it just sort of feels heavy to you. They're past mistakes, they're embarrassing stories from before, they're bad decisions you've made, skeletons in your closet, your history, the trails you're leaving behind you, the news clippings that might be out there, something you wrote on Twitter five or six years ago that's coming out, some picture of you at a party, in college, you know, something. There's things. You ever have somebody tag you in a photo like on Facebook or something and then you see the picture and you're like, what in the world? Why'd you tag me in that? Life can tag you with some things. Dragging toilet paper on the bottom of your shoe and you're like, what? How long have I been walking around with that? You see, sometimes the things we carry weigh us down, and sometimes people collapse under the weight of their burdens that are seen and unseen. And I don't know what this lady was thinking or feeling. I cannot know what her life was like because she was an outcast, unable to go to the places that other women could go. I don't know what it's like to have dirty looks thrown my way all day. I don't know what it's like to hear an undercurrent or a a murmuring of things as I walk by, but she did. And if I had lived there, I might have looked at her and had a few choice names for her that I said to myself or whispered to my friends about who she was and what she was. Because it's easier to label people than it is to get to know them and find out that they're really a lot more like us than they're unlike us. So we label people. You're this, you're that, she's this, she's that. We like to put people in boxes. Because it takes time to get to know somebody as flesh and blood people who deserve more than just a label. That's why I'm encouraged that John chapter 4 says that Jesus had to go. He had to go through Samaria. He saw this woman. He saw this outcast of a woman and he said, I have to go. I gots to meet this woman. I gots to get by that well at 12 when she's going to be there. He had to have known this was going to happen. He had to have planned it in his mind. While I might be thinking certain words to say about her, Jesus might be saying, one of my children is hurting. One of my children needs to know more about me. One of my children needs to see and feel and know me for who I am. One of my children needs to know that they are loved and accepted and bought at a price. One of my children needs to know that I love them, an everlasting, relentless love that will not die. One of my children needs to know that what unconditional acceptance is and respond to me in unabashed, unrestrained love. One of my children needs to learn what the heart of worship is. So this is the important thing. This is the thing that I learned from going to that 
burger, beautiful camp, not a camp out, cookout years ago. All I wanted was pretty girls and burgers. And other people said, look, there's three guys, and I bet you they don't know the Lord. Let's go attack them. They didn't know me. They didn't care to know me, but somehow bringing me to the Lord was more important than knowing me. How can you separate those two things out? So this is one of my my things. This is important. Reach out to people based on their needs, not your agenda. It's not about you. It's about them. This shows the relentless love of Christ. All this for a single woman who ended up being the evangelist for her town. She went back to town and brought people out and said, could this man be the Messiah? Can you imagine she's the one doing that? But she says, you shouldn't be talking to me. I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan. What's the deal with that? Que pasó? Why are you talking to me? And Jesus says, I see you. I see who you are, woman. I see that you've been married five times and you're now living with someone who's not your husband. But true worship is not based on time or place. Worship should grow out of spirit and truth. It's not about where you are physically, but it's about where you are spiritually. I am the Messiah. I am the one who can touch the deep core of your soul. And when you see me, when you see that I love you, and when you have known that I love you, and it is only then that you'll realize that I love you, then you can truly start to say that you love me. Feeling accepted, safe, and cared for is the beginning of change. And I'm going to repeat that line because it's very important. Feeling accepted as you are, feeling safe, and feeling cared for is the beginning of change. In other words, no one is ever going to change until they feel like you accept them as they are, and they feel safe with you to open up to you. And they feel cared for as they are. So if you only meet people supposedly to get them to come to church, let's say, and accept the Lord, then you are meeting them with your agenda and you're going to manipulate them to meet your agenda. But if you just care about people, whether it's your neighbor or your coworker or your children or your parents or your spouse, if you just care about them, Jesus sets up a divine appointment with this woman and he connects with her as is. This woman is like the, uh, the home goods or the at home or the Tuesday morning. She's those leftover things that are left over and some of them have nicks and scratches and it's labeled as is. No returns. I should wear a sign that says that. As is. Take me as I am. Love me or let me be lonely. The song. 60s. Old man. You see, that's what change is. That's what conversion is. That's what justification is. That's what redemption is. It's to know that you are seen by God and you are loved by God and you respond to that love by loving Him back. You enter into relationship 
with him. You are confronted with the the truth. He's pure and he's holy, but he accepts you unpure and unholy as you are. The holy draws the unholy to him. He starts where you are and then he walks with you and he grows with you because it's not perfection. It's about direction. And I always relate that sentence to losing weight or getting in shape or anything. Let's say you are out of shape and you're very heavy and you weigh 250 pounds and you reach this point, you feel terrible, you're out of shape, you eat terrible, you're 250 pounds and now you really decide to do something about your life. You really are going to do it and so you turn. That's change. That's conversion. But how much are you weighing right now? You're 250. But you have changed. So now the process starts. So now you're 249 and you're you're thinking about macaroni and cheese and you're thinking about breadsticks and you're thinking about Snickers bars. But you're still, you're on your way. You're headed in the right direction. And then the next day you're 248 and you still want that Snickers bar and you still want that macaroni and cheese. But you're on your way. So it's not about being perfect. It's about being facing in the direction that you should be going. First down. I saw the Super Bowl last week. I know football. So maybe some of you live in Savannah, and some of you live in Pooler, and some of you live even faraway places like Richmond Hills. Yes, Kansas City. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now I've lost my place. Usher. Let's say you live in faraway places like Savannah or Pooler, or even somewhere far away like Richmond Hills or way down there in Bluffton, South Carolina or Hardyville. Do I have any Hardyville people? Let's say you live even far away like that. Can you take that verse from John chapter 4 and personalize it for you and say, Jesus had to go to Richmond Hills. Jesus had to go to Kansas City. Missouri. Jesus had to go to Bluffton, to Hardyville. Why did he have to go there? Because his children are there. So he has to go where you are. And then he says, come follow me. But he's got to find you where you are. Because until he finds you where you are, you can't follow him to where he wants you to go. That's the point of the Bible. So when we talk about the Bible, the main point is Jesus. So it's not enough to just know things. You have to to realize that He loves other people and you draw them into your life because you love people, because He loves people. It's not enough to preach. It's not enough to do church. Because sometimes you can just remain coldly aloof from people. You've got to find sympathy for people. Meaning you've got to feel what they feel. You've got to come close to people. There's a great quote from the book, Ministry of Healing. You got that, my brother? Beautiful. The world needs today what it needed 2,000 years ago, which would now be 2,100 years ago. A revelation of Christ. Christ's methods alone will give true success in reaching the people. 
Jesus interacted with others as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs. That means he gave them burgers. He won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. There is need of coming close to people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonizing, watch that preacher, and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted, the ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, and the power of the love of God, this work will not, cannot be without fruit. Now that woman could preach. So I leave you with this, young people. No one wants to be manipulated. And the beauty of God is that He sees you the way you are. He accepts you as you are. And then He calls you to come up higher. He he doesn't leave you where you are. He calls you, follow me. Follow me and I will make you more than you ever dreamed you could be. Because eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And mind cannot conceive the things that God has prepared. For those who love him. That's the deep, pure, sacrificial, amazing love of Christ for us. Little song. Here's a little um, poem kind of thing that I found that I want to share. It says, I want to live by choice and not by chance. I want to be motivating, not manipulating. I want to be useful to other people, not use other people. I want to not view people as lost, but as children of the King. I want to help make changes, not support making excuses. I want to help others listen to the inner voice of the Spirit, not the random opinion of others. Let us pray. Father, I thank You for Jesus pursuing this woman and showing the relentless love of God which goes to find us no matter where we are. There is no place too far or too deep or too high that he cannot find us. I thank you that this woman responded to the call and went and called back other people and said, could this be the Messiah? So Father, I pray in our own lives we'll see other people as just your children, that we'll love them for who they are, we'll be kind and loving and let you work and arrange divine appointments that we can share good news. Bless each one of us this week. Empower us to do your work. May we be safe and strong. And filled with your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.